You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome all to this episode of Core Curriculum. Core Curriculum is a podcast in which we read slowly, thoughtfully, and amiably through Columbia University's Great Books list. The book that we're reading through in this season, if you've been listening in order, you already know the answer, but just in case, it's The Odyssey, and we're going to be talking about books 12, 13, and 14. With me this evening... Well, before I should say who's with me, I should say who I am. I'm David Grubbs, recording from Sugarland, Texas. So you might have heard me on the Christian Humanist podcast, Christian Humanist Profiles, and uh, periodically I shove my way into uh, other podcast conversations around about the network. And with me tonight is Michael Farmer. Where are you recording from? Sandy Springs, Georgia, David. Sandy Springs, Georgia. It's the it's It's a new place for me to remember. Yeah, well, at least it's uh, uh, alliterative. Yeah. Nice place. Hot water. I, our hot water works, yeah. <laughs> I've never found the actual springs, but I suppose there must have been some at some point. Yeah, yeah. And you would have heard Michael Farmer on the Christian Humanist podcast. Uh, you just recorded a before they before they were live, didn't you? I am the co-host of Before They Were Live, but by this time this one airs, David, there'll have been multiple more before they were live. So no reason to tie oh, into anything uh, time specific. Uh, okay, all right. I'm on that like... show. I'm on Christian Humanist profiles sometimes, and then I kind of duck in and out of the other shows just to show that I can. All right. We'll keep it asynchronous. Also joining us is Katie Grubbs, who is also in Sugarland, Texas, in in the other room. Um, yeah, I'm coming to you from the kitchen this evening. <laughs> A woman's place. <laughs> right? I know, yeah. What's that about? Um, David's in an armchair. Perhaps the man's place. Um <laughs> <laughs> Where would we have um, heard you, Katie? I am usually on the Christian <laughs> Feminist Podcast, also complimentarianish, and um, I've been sometimes on Sectarian Review as well, and here on the core curriculum. Yeah, all the subtexts, just delightful, wonderful. Well, uh, speaking of subtexts, uh, we are in book twelve, beginning with in book twelve of the Odyssey which is the the last of four books in which Odysseus won't stop talking. Yeah. Fortunately, he's a good storyteller, and his, uh, his audience is so rapt that uh, when he tries to wind things down in Chapter 11, they won't let him stop and compel him to go on for another book and a half. So, yeah. But the whole time... Uh, he has he has an agenda as he always does, uh, and the stories that he tells uh, often have an interesting relevance to what is happening in the moment. But 
let's see. When we start in book 12, he has just uh, escaped from the land of the dead. The dead were surging around him, hordes of them, thousands raising unearthly cries, blanching terror gripped him, and he runs away. Very walking dead. I just want and to point he, out, David, that he leaves hell and things get worse. <laughs> that is pretty remarkable. <laughs> and then my day went, and then and then it was downhill from there. <laughs> so, what are we? What, what's interesting early on in book twelve? He's returned to Cersei's island. She gives him a lot of advice. Anything in particular we want to? to note about that scene he knows everything that is going to happen to them in really horrific detail and he tells his men some of it because he's kind of democratic but he also keeps it from them because he's not entirely democratic so so if if we're taking odysseus as the model of leadership which i think in some ways we're supposed to uh, you you tell your men just enough to uh, get them to do what they need to do, and then you shut your mouth. Although, maybe it doesn't work as well for him as he might hope. Yeah. Works in the siren thing, not so much with Scylla and Charybdis. Or that whole cattle thing. But he's not hiding anything with the cattle. Right. No, he tells them outright. Yeah. I love the way book 12 begins with them arriving at Cersei's Island and immediately burying Elpenor's body. Because they've seen the consequences of not doing that, right? Yeah. Well, also, Elpenor's ghost threatened to curse him if he didn't. (laughs) Uh, You know, you you, you know this if you listen to the previous episode, uh, dear listener, but uh, one of my favorite parts in the Odyssey is when Elpenor, uh, the youngest and dumb- dumbest member of the crew, gets drunk and falls off the roof <laughs> and manages to beat them to the realm of the dead. <laughs> How long is it supposed to take to get to that? I, fig- I figured you went there immediately when you died. Well, I mean, Elpenor is there when they get there. And so... Uh, Odysseus has some kind of a lame, like, hey, buddy, you, you beat us here. Look at that. It's kind of, uh, kind of wrong. I don't know. To me, it feels like a joke trying to lighten a dark situation, and then Elpenor threatens to curse him if he doesn't get buried. Right. So they do it. Anything else we want to say about Cersei before we go? I know that she's probably been mulled over a great deal in the episode before this, but, you know, in, at the beginning of 12, you'd have the impression that she's actually super helpful. There's not a whole lot of her here. Um, though the, the kind of extreme detail she gives him is, is I mean, it is really helpful. You know, she, she, everything she tells him, I mean, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but everything she tells him turns out to be true. Mm-hmm. And, um, she, you know, kind of, I mean, got up to telling her, telling him how to avoid being captured by the sirens. 
very specifically. She doesn't just say, I don't listen to them. Um, but here's how you can, if you want to hear, this is what you should do. You know, um, so that you can still hear the song, which that's that that part of the story has always been interesting to me, that he would take the chance of listening when he knows what the, why he shouldn't and that nobody else should. Um, and it's interesting to me that she tells him what to do if he wants to listen. Um, I, I, I don't why not just encourage him to under no under no circumstances should you listen um, unless it's just a, a curiosity thing. And then when he hears the sound, <laughs> the song of the sirens, they one of the, what they promise is that he will become wiser, mm. which I wonder when I read that again this time, it says he, this is my super old timey translation. He who listens will go on his way, not only charmed, but wiser. Um, and they say that we can tell you everything that's going to happen over the whole world. I, I always wondered if the sirens, if they promise the same thing to every person mm. or, or if they know they what know, he wants. Yes. If they know what you would like to know. If you know he would like knowledge or wisdom or to know what's going to happen when he gets back home or whatever, is that the same promise they make to everybody, or do they sing different things to different people? Though I, I suppose there's no, um, no, yeah, they do know it's. I was going to say, do they know it's him? They know exactly who he is because they address him by name. So if they know who all the people are who come by, maybe they promise them all different things. I don't know. What interests me about that is, you know, him being tied to the mast with the sirens there is, is one of the famous scenes from the book. And when you see it presented in popular culture, it is often presented as proof of Odysseus's craftiness, right? Cause that's like the fundamental thing about Odysseus is he's crafty, but it's not even his idea. Like this completely yeah. comes from Circe who, you know, is elsewhere in the poem, a, um, a, a, a real figure of horror. You know, she's turning men's in, men into pigs and eating them. So it's it's interesting to me that he ends up getting credit for this, even though it's her idea. And, and it's yeah. interesting to me that Cersei, who is usually presented as um, a kind of force for evil, is a force neither for good or for evil, or, you know, is a force for both. She's she's really kind of an elemental force, like so many mm -hmm. of the so many of the divine figures in the in, the, in these um in these myths are she's she's not really on anybody's side except her own and just kind of you know if, if you run into her good things might happen or bad things might happen but things are going to happen yeah she the she gives them the solution but it's a direct mirroring of how he is able to overcome the trap that she represents uh this is back in um Back in book 10, if I remember rightly, Hermes pops up and gives him the secret cheat code to get past, you know, the Cersei level. <laughs> right. So there's there's no boss fight um, with Cersei. He, he just immediately knows the tactic for overcoming her and so is able to secure her aid through this timely divine warning. And now he's done now the, the exact same thing is happening. I mean, he he gets all, he has this reputation for cleverness, yeah, but some of his clever ideas are not actually his ideas. I think it's with with all the gods and all the Greek myths, you have to I think keep in mind that they kind of reward you for be for being who you are, and so they help you to do the thing you would have done anyway. 
Ah. Right? So you think of, like, Oedipus. Why is Oedipus punished for doing this thing he was fated to do? Well, it's because Oedipus is the sort of guy who would have done that thing, whether he was fated to do it or not. So maybe maybe the, the goddesses, and it does seem to be mostly female uh, deities who are who are so in love with uh, Odysseus, maybe they're helping him to do the thing that he would have done anyway. I wonder, though whether she gives him this cheat for being able to listen to the sirens because she knows that he won't be able to overcome curiosity. Sure. And because it, it describes him, uh, he hears the voices and the heart inside me throbbed to listen longer. I signaled the crew with frowns to set me free and they just rode harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she knows that if, if they get anywhere close by, He's going to make sure all his dudes have wax in their ears or whatever, but he's going to go off the boat, right? As soon as he hears that song, come be wise. Also, we know all the pains that the Greeks and Trojans once endured. Like, come be wise. We understand you. Mm -hmm. Uh, For someone as, as alienated like cerebral and alienated as Odysseus is. I guess that's a, that's a pretty good siren song. Well, Scylla, Charybdis, it's a pretty classic one. Anything yeah, well, that we yeah. to unpack here? Somebody, somebody <laughs> should make some sort of saying about that. Right. Do you say Scylla? I've always said Scylla. I say Scylla because I think like scepter, scimitar, uh-huh. scythe. Um, I can't say I can't say that that's actually in any way meaningfully an approximation of Greek pronunciation. How did Sting pronounce it in Raptor Runs Your Finger? I can't remember now. Uh, I think he says Scylla. Oh well, well then I'll defer to you and Sting, but I'm going to keep saying Scylla. <laughs> How do you say it, Katie? Uh, Honestly, in my head, I've always heard of Skyla, so I'm no help at all. (laughs) Bachelor number three. (laughs) Or Scylla. I I don't. I can't remember remember if I if how I pronounce the C as much because I think I've said it different ways to myself in the past. But the Y was always a long I when I said it for no reason. I've never heard anyone else say it out loud till we've been doing these episodes. So I just kind of gave it my best guess. Oh my gosh, Michael. Sting taught me how to say Scylla and Charybdis. Wow. Like, like, I genuinely as long as he didn't cannot... teach you how to say Nabokov. You know, he famously yeah. mispronounces Nabokov really? in, in uh, oh, well, Stand So Close to Me. He calls him Nabokov. It, yeah, in order to, yeah. To, yeah, to make it good. fit. One of these days, uh, we got to just do a full season on the police albums. <laughs> Anyway, Scylla, Scylla, and Charybdis. Scylla, Scylla. Uh, they get cited. Uh, it, it becomes a uh, just a common metaphor or allegory very, very early on. Um, uh, very famously, Aristotle uses it as his illustration for uh, the challenge of being able to chart the middle path between two strongly attractive poles and 
usually for uh, a, per, a, a person, one pole is much stronger than the other. And so if that's the case, hitting the median means actually going closer to the pole that you're less attracted to. Hmm. Because it's the one that you are less drawn towards. That's in the um, Nicomachean Ethics? Yeah, it's in the Nicomachean Ethics. The hilarious thing is that he actually gets the reference wrong. Uh, I, I love this every time I read, every time I, I, I teach through that section of Nicomachean uh, Ethics, I think I forgive myself for making errors because here's Aristotle screwing up uh, his retelling of, of this section because he says that it's Calypso who teaches Odysseus how to get past Scylla and Charybdis. Oops. Oops. It's a different nymph with lovely braids. <laughs> but yeah, that Scylla and Charybdis becomes this, uh, it's like rock in a hard place. Yes. Devil in the deep blue sea. Actually, it's kind uh, of literally Devil in the Deep Blue Sea, right? Because I, <laughs> Lord help me, I can never remember which one of them is the whirlpool and which one of them is the abomination that lives in the in the sky castle, the sky right. cliff. But one of mm-hmm. them, one of them is the ocean, and one of them is you know, like an eldritch abomination almost. There's Charybdis is the Charybdis is the the whirlpool. Okay, so Scylla is the one. Where if you yeah. if you Google it, there's there's no agreed upon picture of of her. It that that nobody can agree on what that thing even is. Just that it's this abomination that kills every human being it sees. In Metamorphosis, um, Ovid's Metamorphosis, Metamorphoses, uh, if I remember rightly, the origin of Scylla is told, and she's supposed to be a sea nymph who is a romantic rival for the affections of the same man that Circe is after, and that Circe is the one who magics her into this form. Oh, interesting. Uh, I can't imagine that, uh, that, that that's got to be some kind of story that arose after the Odyssey. Yeah. Because, because that seems like such a like such an arbitrary connection it, it must it must follow follow that the you know as somebody's explanation for why it is that uh Cersei knows so accurately what Scylla's up to and how to evade her as best you can but what's interesting about that is there's no way to evade her you you just have to she's going to eat a certain number of your men and there's nothing you can yeah. do about it. Just submit to it, let it happen, and hope it's not you. Which, you know, that's that's pretty bleak and also pretty Greek. Yeah. Well, and also, don't slow down and try to fight, because she'll just take more. Right. Uh, which, everything in Odysseus hates that. <laughs> but... She's kind of the Swedish model of how to deal with the coronavirus, right? Just uh, get your get your get your herd immunity and say goodbye to the people who are going to die. I was thinking something along those lines when you were talking, but I opted not to, <laughs> to throw that into the ring. Well, Speaking you know, of uh, timely references, you know, though I this is going to sound ridiculous, but and if you think about the body count surrounding. Odysseus throughout this entire epic losing that number of guys as they go through this d- 
difficult kind of situation between these two monsters or whatever is is still a light loss compared to all the times he lost everybody. Right. There's so many times when he's the only one left alive because he's clinging to like a spar or something, you know, um, to still have most of his guys left after this encounter. I don't know. Maybe that's just me getting immune (laughs) to him losing people because it happened so much during the during the story. Well, and then think about uh, how many people he must have lost at Troy, you know, like this is a guy whose entire life for the last 20 years has been defined by surviving when everybody around him died. Yeah. I mean, you can tell after this moment that, that the, the companions are weeping for the men that Scylla plucked from the hollow ship and ate alive. Uh, roundabout line, um, 333 in uh, the Fagel's translation. So, I mean, they, they do miss them. But, I mean, your point is your point is apt, Katie, because they lose three guys to Scylla. Well, they lost one guy to getting drunk and falling off a roof. <laughs> <laughs> but he deserved it. <laughs> I mean, I, but, but seriously, I mean, that's part of it, right? Like, the, the, when, when he dies, when they steal the cattle from the, from the sun... And they they die for that. You feel like they're being punished for something. Skilla is just pure contingency. This is this is mm-hmm. just happens. There's no way to avoid it. There's no rhyme or reason to it. And and that makes it that makes it yeah. more horrible in some ways. It is. It's it's much more horrifying. It's not war, you know. It's just and I mean even which guys were chosen from their ship. It's just random, um, mm-hmm. evil. And yeah, the the translation that I'm reading says they went on crying till they fell off into a sound sleep. They cried themselves to sleep. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's um, we talked in one of the other episodes I did the other day about how much men cry in this epic, and we all talked about how much we like it. Yeah, <laughs> not, not that they're sad, but that there's there's you know this is not apparently not a culture in which men crying is considered a problem or a sign of weakness or something like that. It's, it's, it's a, very Mediterranean, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, these mm-hmm. men don't have any problem expressing grief, at least. I don't know about, a, you know, other emotions. But um, we, before we move on from, um, and I mean, maybe you're going there next, David. I did have one thing I wanted to say about the whole episode with the cattle uh, of the sun god thing. It's the next thing. Go for it. Um, my favorite thing about that whole, that, well, two, there are two things that this whole episode that I really like about it. One is that, for whatever reason, it reminds me of... Uh, Moses going up onto the mountain and while he's gone, the people just immediately uh-huh. making it, right? Like uh-huh. that <laughs> strong, I get a strong sensation of golden calf. Um, but also, uh, I, my other favorite part is when they get there, he, he says, Hey, we're not going to stop. You know, we can't, we don't need to stop. We don't need to eat these cattle. Let's just, you know, we're just going <laughs> to head the ship away. And what, uh, you're, 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 um, says, and this one, he says, Odysseus, you are cruel. You are very strong yourself and never get worn out. You seem to be made of iron. And now, though your men are exhausted with toil and want to sleep, you will not let them land and cook themselves a good supper upon this island, but bid them put out to sea and go fearing fruitlessly on through the watches of the flying night. I really like this part because it's somebody in the story acknowledging that his level of endurance makes no sense for a regular person. Um, and we know that he's not regular because he's under the protection of Athena and all these things. But I, I just I love that part where one of his crew members says, you might be able to go on forever, endlessly, but everybody can't do that. 
can we please stop and to just take a minute, Odysseus? And uh, and and I mean, what he wants to do is wrong. Odysseus is right. They should not land here. It's all going to go wrong. But I can understand this objection from one of his guys because he's. It, it makes me think of like. I don't know, like Aragorn in Lord of the Rings or something, you know, like everybody else is tired or needs to eat or whatever, but he seems able just to keep going and going and going. That's Odysseus, you know. But but at, at least two points in, in the poem, Odysseus complains about his physical needs demanding that he eat. Oh, so, yeah. So even he like there's this sense in, that. there's this sense in the poem and what this poem has that the Iliad doesn't I was just talking about this on on Twitter today this poem has like a sensuality to it everybody's always like drinking a flagon of wine and eating a joint of meat right there they, they there's there's a real like earthiness to this like like you see in Sappho to some extent not as much as in mm-hmm. Sappho but to some extent but Odysseus resents that he resents his need to eat um, which which might even like prove your point further, Katie. That that he he's superhuman and he wishes he was even more superhuman. He, he wishes the things that tied him to his body didn't tie him to them. You know, that makes sense. I, I you know, I think he can be a pretty a pretty sensual, pretty enjoying the pleasures guy. Um, there's a moment at the beginning. Uh, like right at the beginning of the storytelling in book nine, where he talks about being at a feast, listening to the poet, hearing songs, being with friends, that, that combination of food and drink and companionship and song. And he says, this is the best thing in life Mm -hmm. that we are enjoying now. But those same those same things that are pleasures in the desired moments are compelling needs in other moments. And they put him at the mercy of things. It's the difference between being hungry and being starving. Yeah. Yeah. The difference between enjoying your food and being compelled to make a, a, an incredibly dangerous decision based on the fact that you're starving. Mm -hmm. He hates, he hates feeling trapped. Well, and they don't just eat it a little bit so they're not starving anymore, though. <laughs> yeah, they, they, sla- they slaughter all they of them? Just, they just keep feasting, even though almost immediately these joints of meat start to make noises like living cows. Did yeah. you guys notice that part? <laughs> the gods? Yeah. The, the hides began to crawl, the meat, both raw and roasted, bellowed out on the spits, and we heard a noise like the moan of lowing oxen. I mean, yeah, right, right after that, he says, for six days, my men kept driving the best cows and feasting on them. On them. I'm assuming that they're making noise the whole time. And they just didn't care. <laughs> That's kind of terrifying. Moo, moo. Get in my belly. <laughs> <laughs> That's something. Zombie steaks. <laughs> Did you guys hear that? Nah. <laughs> it's like every, it's like every goofy dad joke ever about I want it so rare that it is mooing. Yeah, maybe that's really happened. These guys. (laughs) Yeah, so rare it's grazing on the garnish. (laughs) What's interesting to me about that scene is that they they go through all the right um 
ritual. So they, they sacrifice these cows to the gods before they eat them. But, of course, how are you going to steal a god's cattle and then sacrifice them to him? Right. Yeah, right. no. Do we That's know what like, Helios uh, planned on doing with the cattle? Are they his pets? Was he going to eat them? <laughs> I don't know. David, do you know? Uh, I, you know, I think he just has them. Like, he didn't even watch them. He's the son. He's got to go do son stuff. He calls them the great joy of his heart. It's, it's yeah. Kinda, it's kind of sad if you think about it. He has a like, long, a long six days of circling the planet. And uh, he uh, he comes back, and the only thing he loves in the world has been destroyed by these mortals. I want him dead too. He's just flying over the world, waiting, waiting, waiting. Hey, cows! And then he goes to set. <laughs> uh, I can't I can't help but imagine him as the son from the Raisin Bran commercial. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. I just saw that in my mind, even though I haven't thought about that for probably 20 years. <laughs> And now give him angry eyebrows. Oh. Well, Zeus steps in, and Zeus is going to destroy him. Um, the description of, of that destruction is a pretty good epic simile. I, I do want to point out about this episode, though, is that he tries to avoid it. Uh-huh. They bully him into landing, and they had plenty of food. They had plenty of food, but as soon as they land, for a whole month, it says, line 350, a whole month, the south wind blew nonstop. No other wind came up, none but the south-southeast. And as long as the food and wine held out, the crew was fine, but then... So they had they had a month's worth of rations. They land on this island to have dinner, and immediately the weather keeps them there for a month. It's like they can't win. The gods are starving them until they eat the cattle of the sun, which will curse them. <laughs> it's, yeah, that 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 feels that feels uh, more um, less less Sophocles than uh, the other guy. Euripides. That one starts with an E. I wanted to say Empedocles, but that's not right. Yeah, there's a, there's a kind of maltheism at play here, isn't there? Mm-hmm. You wonder if maybe they did it just so Odysseus would have better stories to tell at this at this banquet. Oh. Oh, that's dark. I, I want to put it past Athena, though. I I I don't know that I put anything past Athena if it would make him more awesome. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, she's, you know, but maybe, maybe that was a, a slightly a bridge too far. I don't know. Apparently, he never ate any of the any of the cows because he doesn't get punished. Is that is that a good assumption? Did did he just kind of like sit there at the edge of the fire with his knees pulled up to his chest? brooding as they all eat rare mooing steak that's what i that's what i picture yeah waiting for the curse to fall (laughs) but i mean he does i don't know if you would call it punishment but he goes through charybdis all alone yeah that's he goes he goes down into the the whirlpool and it spits him back out no i think 
think um, I think he he grabs onto something because I was just rereading that and he because he watches his raft go down into it. Here it is. Wait. Um, he says uh, he was carried aloft toward the fig tree where I caught which I caught hold of and clung onto like a bat. I could not plant my feet anywhere um, so as to stand securely. So I, anyway, skipping ahead, he hang, he, I hung patiently on, waiting till the fool should discharge my mast and raft again. And then it spits it back out again. And he falls into the sea and gets back on this raft and goes about his way. But it, that's actually, that's really impressive too, though. Because he manages to cling on however long it takes for his raft to go all the way down to the bottom of the whirlpool and come all the way back up again. I mean, he is the man of iron endurance, as that one guy said. <laughs> and then he ends up with Calypso but he already told them that story it goes and... against my grain to repeat a tale told once and told so clearly that's very, narr- <laughs> that's very narratively convenient for Homer right uh, does he really though does it really go against his grain <laughs> <laughs> he always seems to enjoy telling a story even a false story Anytime, though I don't. Maybe he doesn't ever actually tell the exact same story twice. Maybe that's maybe that's true. Well, speaking of telling false stories, book thirteen and fourteen. Oh man, my favorite <laughs> moment in all of in all of uh, Homer is in book thirteen. He yeah. he lands at Ithaca at last, right? I know we probably have stuff to talk about uh, before that, but. Uh, he lands at Ithaca at last, and he runs into Athena, and the first thing he does is concoct the story about who he is and why he's there. And, of course, she's a god, so I'm going to read. This is from Stanley Lombardo's translation, because I like it better than the Fagels on this point. Only a master thief, she says, or real con artist could match your tricks. Even a god might come up short. You wily bastard. You cunning, elusive, habitual liar. And then I imagine them hugging, because you know she admires him for it. <laughs> I love that the way I love the end of Purgatorio when Dante finally uh, sees Beatrice in the Garden of Eden at the top <laughs> about Purgatory and she just lays into it. <laughs> yeah. I love it's it. It's pretty wonderful. Now, she has also appeared to him in the form of a suspiciously well-dressed shepherd boy. Sure. Uh, and just before that speech that you read, and this is this is the the Fagels, he's just gotten done telling her this complete lie about who he is and how he got there. His story ended, goddess Athena, gray eyes gleaming, broke into a smile, stroked him with her hand, and now she appeared a woman, beautiful, tall, and skilled at weaving lovely things. I mean, if you read that exactly as it is written on the page, as he finishes his story, the suspiciously well-dressed shepherd boy smiles with his eyes twinkling, strokes his hand, and then becomes Athena. Like, there's like a moment where Odysseus is like, what is that? Oh. Oh, it's you. You wily <laughs> bastard. I like that one better. This this translation says, that is why I cannot desert you in your afflictions. You are so plausible, shrewd, and shifty. So plausible. I like that too, though. <laughs> We're both uh, old hands at the arts of entry. That's what Fagel says. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. No kidding. Chance- I mean, no wonder she loves him, right? He's terrible yeah. just the way she's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
it's so interesting to read this too if you think about i don't know i think about kind of modern day heroes or like the kinds of things that you see in movies like somebody like captain america who's like straight arrow tell the truth speak it like i find it like that kind of it's just it's interesting to see to read this and think like it seems clear that culturally that that odysseus is is that this is some that this is what is you know admired i not i mean you know he has all these other attributes that people would admire right like he's has this enormous endurance and leadership and all this kind of stuff but you know one but the thing that you seem to that seems to get said the most is he's just such a good liar (laughs) that's just so funny (laughs) well you know it's interesting Um, because the romans hated him for that very quality i mean Ah, dante has him in hell for that quality he's actually fairly deep in hell because he dissimulates so much so so there was some values dissonance even in the ancient world, let alone into the Christian era. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, it, you see it when you get into the Aeneid. The Ulysses of the Aeneid is just a straight-up villain. You know, he's he's not even a... He's not a lovable rogue <laughs> in any form. Well, and you don't even have to go into the Roman era because uh, in the, the Sophocles play, Philoctetes, he's the bad guy. And he's the bad guy for the very oh, reason yeah. that he's the good guy here, which is that he'll do anything to save himself. Yeah, yeah. And we recorded a Christian Humanist podcast episode of that, that dear listener. We so did. There'll can... be a link to it in the uh, show notes for this. And if you, by the way, if you're not going to the show notes, I spent a lot of time putting a bunch of links and stuff in there. So make it worth my time. Go look at our show notes at <laughs> christianhumanist.org. Yeah. Yep. 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 Before uh, we, we've talked about that lovely moment, um, that is one of my favorite moments too. Uh, this is the, I feel like that's the moment when you realize this is why Athena loves him. This mm-hmm. is why, you know, this is this is as 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 close as you get to, you know, a one true couple in the book. I know he's ultimately going to be restored to Penelope, but in some sense, you know, Athena is his lady. Um. But before that, we have the Phaeacians who who bring him home, which mostly it's just a description of what they do to prepare the ship and all the rest of it. He gets on the ship, uh, roundabout line, you know, 80 or so, and almost as soon as they put out to sea, there's this kind of sonorous little passage uh, as soon they swung back and the blades tossed, uh, the blades tossed up the spray and irresistible sleep fell deep on his eyes. The sweetest soundest oblivion still is the sleep of death itself. And so he falls asleep uh, as the ship rocks back and forth. And so when they land in Ithaca, they carry him out to the beach asleep. <laughs> and they lay him out gently, and they lay all the treasures around so that he'll see him when he wakes up. You know, like I'm just I'm just imagining they're like they're like parents on Christmas Eve. <laughs> it is it's very it's you know, very tender, isn't it? It is nice. Yeah, he's gonna be so happy when he wakes up. I feel like I'd say, "Hey, wake up! We're there." <laughs> By the way, did you see how they're paying for all those treasures? 
Oh yeah, yeah. We'll just tax them. <laughs> they're very, they're very blatant about it. We'll just, we'll, we'll recover our costs with levies on the people. They gotta have enough money to give them cauldrons, Michael. <laughs> well, every, every man needs a cauldron or cauldrons. <laughs> I thought, why are these cauldrons so special? <laughs> well, you know, it's focus, focus, or something. When I hear cauldrons, hey, it's the crockpot of the ancient world. They can't have, you know, they can't have a good, you know. A good Thanksgiving spread without enough cauldrons. <laughs> I guess they never seem to be eating anything that would be cooked in a cauldron. <laughs> Unless they're boiling all that meat, which would be a shame. I would really like to read a short story where the people of Phaeacia uh, revolt over this tax and kill the king. <laughs> And, ins- right, and install, like, a communist state in his place. <laughs> well, they don't even get there because the gods immediately punish them for helping Odysseus. It's true, yeah. There aren't, uh, uh, the punishment's really weird, right? They're, like, blocked in. The island gets gets cut off from everybody. Yeah, basically a mountain gets dropped on the on the uh, the entrance of the port. Like like they were they were a maritime people like much earlier in the book I think it might be book it book maybe six or seven somewhere in there um, I think it's Nausicaa makes a comment that uh, her people love ships more than they love anything else Man. and so and they are they are their their king is literally descended from Poseidon and so Poseidon is so ticked that they help this guy he hates that that he just blocks off their port he seals them off from the sea is this the and only Zeus, place in the poem somebody is punished for their hospitality well okay i i feel like this needs to land um zeus says uh, poseidon says hey zeus basically i'm boiling it up um, I'm really mad because Odysseus is going home and my patience helped him, but it seems to be all your idea, so I'm not really sure what to do about it. And Zeus says, well, you're a god, you know, nobody's disrespecting you, so the power's yours, do what you like. And he says, well, okay, I, I think I think I want to crush the ship on the way home. That'll show them. I'll pile a mountain in front of their port. And then Zeus sidles up next to him and says, wait, dear brother. Here's what seems best to me. Wait till the ship gets close enough that everybody in the city can see it and then turn it into a ship-shaped rock and then drop the mountain on them. And what, what I think is so fascinating about that, it happens exactly the way he says What's so fascinating about that is that back in, literally back in book five, Zeus decreed that Odysseus would be released by Calypso, that he would be washed up on the shores of Sharia, that he would be welcomed by the Phaeacians, and that they would help him home and give him gifts. And he is the god who enforces the rules of hospitality. That's right. And and here he is conspiring with his brother to destroy people for bringing about an an action that he destined based on a virtue that he's supposed to be the rewarder of. Zeus sucks. 
Yeah. A little, little more Euripides there. <laughs> but but Homer doesn't dwell on it. Like the it, the the, no. the poem just kind of sails along. Yeah, it's 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 more like, well, that's the gods for you. What are you going to do? And then when Odysseus wakes up, he doesn't realize where it is because it's foggy. And the first thing he does is to curse the Phaeacians for stranding him on some, you know, benighted island and breaking their promises to bring him home. And it is at the very moment in which they are being punished for keeping their promises. And that's, like he's that's just a massive bummer. <laughs> like yeah, he says that like like literally line line two thirteen that very moment at, at which everyone in Phaeacia is freaking out and trying to appease Poseidon at that very moment, Great Odysseus wakes up and curses them for because he thinks they broke the promise that they are currently being punished in Moss for keeping. And then here comes Athena. I, I don't know if I if I if I, li- if I if I lived in the theological world of this epic, I would I you know I would really really hope that a different religion was true. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not just it's not just that you're not rewarded for doing the right thing; it's you're punished for doing the right thing. Punished for doing the right thing by the God who enforces the rules of the thing that you did and destined the thing that you did. Right. It is it's very Euripidean. Yeah. It, it's something about Zeus in the Odyssey that is completely unlike Zeus in the Iliad. It's that Zeus seems really weak in the Odyssey. He basically takes the side of whoever happens to be standing closest to him at the moment. And there's a little bit of that in the Iliad, right? He's pretty easily persuadable there, but a little bit. Of you, that. you do get the sense in that poem that he's he's the one in charge in a way that you don't hear. Yeah, I certainly don't see any any real through line between the two poems, other than that they have some of the same characters. The style, I mean, obviously I'm reading translations, but the style doesn't seem the same. The concerns don't seem the same. I would be surprised to learn that they were written by the same person or even the same group of people. I mean, I feel like I I think it's pretty clear that the Iliad and the Odyssey, that the Iliad was written by one person, at least the form that we have it. And the Odyssey was written by one person, the form that we have it, probably drawing on a mass of traditional material which is being selected and redacted and stitched together. There's there's too many plot lines and themes and development of characters and uh, you know continuous references going on in this book for it to be just a quilt. Mm-hmm. But I agree, the Iliad and the Odyssey. I would be really interested to see someone who knows the languages uh, and the poetry, I would be really interested to see someone try to make an argument for the traditional position that these are written by the same person. Um, Cause they do feel so different well, on the other hand, isn't it possible that an author could write two very different books? Yeah. I mean, that's totally possible. It, 
it it seems to me the the Odyssey has a reputation as being a kind of exciting adventure book, right? I I always compare it to Star Trek. You know, he's landing on a planet, oh, moving yeah. on to the next planet, and moving on to the next planet. But I mean, the stuff we've been talking about today is every bit as dark as the most nihilistic parts of the Iliad. It it really goes to show you the 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 genuine darkness under all that Greek paganism. You, you know, you can mm-hmm. you can rejoice in your flagon of wine with Parmesan cheese in it or whatever whatever the kind of cheese they put in it, or all you want. But at bottom, you live in a completely hopeless metaphysical universe where no matter how much you achieve, you're going to end up like. Achilles down in Hades, uh, complaining that you didn't get enough. Yeah. Yeah. When we were doing, I think I, maybe it was when we were talking, talking through books five through seven, but I can't remember. I said then something like, you know, sarcastically, that it was shocking to me that um, in the early church times that there were people who wanted to leave this and come follow Jesus. I. I mean, <laughs> like, the, who I'm, wouldn't I, want to serve a completely uh, mercurial god, and he isn't even Mercury, right? Well, and I, I mean, you know, I was thinking even just to 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 become a monotheist and not have to worry that you know the god who you you know like in this case Poseidon is angry at these people who were special they're supposed to be special to him and he wants to punish them but he's not sure what Zeus thinks about it and Zeus says hey I respect your right to punish them how you want and I'm going to tell you how to make it worse <laughs> like you know um just to be free of gods you know those interactions between the gods in which things come out even worse for the people half the time um or you know power struggles between the gods hurting completely innocent people mm-hmm it's all that like, Iliad stuff. Yeah. Well, 14, I feel like is maybe, maybe you can find the darkness in 14, Michael, but to me, book 14 of the Odyssey is just a, a heartwarming little oasis of, of human kindness. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I do have one line here. This is 96. This is Fagel's. Trust me, the blessed gods have no love for crime. They honor justice, honor the decent acts of men, even cutthroat bandits who raid foreign parts. And Zeus grants them a healthy share of plunder, ships filled to the brim, and back they head for home. Even their dark hearts are stalked by the dread of vengeance. He, he, this Swineherd, like, legitimately believes that he lives in this just moral universe, whereas, in wow. fact... Uh, we know from the previous book of the poem that they don't, and these things don't happen. So, I mean, there's a kind of, you kind of admire, what's his name, Eumaeus? Yeah. The swineherd. You you admire him, but also you you kind of pity him. Yeah. I mean, he he very clearly is, he's a person with, with a good soul, and he's just convinced that that is what is ultimately going to be true of the world at the back. Uh-huh. Oh, there's bad stuff and there's bad people, but deep down, it's goodness and justice that are that are the real, the real things, the true things, the permanent things. 
and then you kind of hate to tell them about book 13. <laughs> but then again, I mean, he's seen evil, right? I mean, he's he's yeah. been waiting here for however long and watched the um and and watched the uh suitors destroy Odysseus's house and plot to kill Telemachus and all the rest. So it's not like he's not acquainted with the evil side of humanity. It's just that he doesn't think the gods are like that, or that the gods will ultimately be like that. Yeah. Yeah. The the welcome that Eumaeus has, uh, the you know his his hospitality is you know for him he's a swineherd offering hospitality to a beggar and he offers him the best that he has uh, but really it's the swineherd offering hospitality to his king uh, that that this is the moment that is closest to a thing that you see um, a bit later in the poem the suitors fear it and when Odysseus arrives in Phaeacia uh, King Alcinous also fears it. The idea that the gods go incognito and test your hospitality. Test whether you will be welcoming to the stranger. And Alcinous suspects that Odysseus might be one of those testing gods. And much later, the suitors wonder whether beggar Odysseus is one of those testing gods. For Emmaus, like, this is the closest to that, really. Um, I mean, this is undercover boss. <laughs> Odysseus isn't a god, but it is it is undercover boss. This is this is a person who who does have a great deal of power to um, hold Emmaus accountable for what he does. Um, but he passes in flying colors because he's a good guy. The loyal swineherd. I um, and this is slightly a field of what you guys were just talking about, but I was just thinking one of my, one of the most interesting parts to me about this book is at the beginning, the description of this whole operation with all of these boars and pigs and like what the swineherd actually does. Cause you hear swineherd, you know, always the swineherd and you're like, Oh, you know, it, it, it you think he's just like out in the field with a couple of pigs. No, like this is a very, it sounds like yeah. a very defined opera. Like this guy, he's, he's an important guy. He's not, you know, he's not just a random guy with some pigs in the sty. Even though at the end of the book, which is my favorite part, we learn that he he's uncomfortable sleeping inside because he wants to make sure that they're okay. So he goes back outside to sleep outside with all the stock. But you know, it, he's um, it, it it's not, you know, it, it makes sense to me that he's doing a, a kindness to a beggar because he is a man who is has some substance he's in charge of some things he's he's powerful in his own way you know yeah the swineherd but he's also the foreman at a pig ranch right basically. yeah it's closer to that yeah than... swineherd is, is understating the case um by a lot but i mean he, it talks about other swineherds who work under him so i suppose maybe he's the top swineherd kind of like when you have a secretary in charge of other secretaries it's the same title but one of them is the boss yeah he's the he's the sergeant i guess or the you know the the, the manager. But the faithfulness of this guy is really remarkable. Yeah. You know, because again, it's been 20 years. Everybody thinks Odysseus is dead. Why is Eumaeus still doing this? Mm-hmm. 
though he doesn't want to hear he well he 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 um but he also doesn't want to hear the good news though you know it's like when it when when odysseus is trying to say oh yeah totally i heard he was totally coming back he keeps saying no nah, no nah, there's no way not really like it would be great if that were true but it's not true <laughs> like he doesn't want to get his hopes up i guess yeah um and that uh let's see and because he, he talks about you know no traveler who comes here um, we'll get them to believe the story. Nevertheless, these tramps keep coming and they keep telling stories. And I mean, I, I get that that's probably why he feels that way because probably tons of people have shown up and said, oh, you should totally give me stuff because I have news of Odysseus when they're just making it up. Yeah. Um, you know. Even that is a kind of sweet protectiveness. He's seen how many times Penelope and Laertes and Telemachus have had their heart broken when some wanderer came with a tall tale won a welcome, and then nothing came of it. You know, and so now Emmaus is a kind of defensive, uh, pr- protective of them, you know, wants to shield them from being, you know, taken in again, offered another false hope. That's kind of, that's sweet, I think. Um... One thing that I noticed in Odysseus's long, tall tale about how he got there, um, by this point, I had really lost patience with Odysseus's tall tales. <laughs> but one thing that rewards reading through it and paying careful attention um, is something like this in his tall tale he becomes the master of a ship and that master and that ship is struck by lightning zeus strikes them down uh this is roundabout line 340 uh once we'd left the island in our wake no land at all in sight nothing but sea and sky then zeus the son of Cronos, mounted a thunderhead above our hollow ship the deep went black beneath it and then in the same breath zeus hit the craft with a lightning bolt and thunder Round she spun, reeling under the impact, fixed, filled with a reeking brimstone, shipmates pitching out of her, bobbing round like sea, seahawks, swept along by the breakers past the trim black hull, and the gods shut, cut short their journey home forever. That is remarkable to me, because that is line for line and word for word the description that he gives to the Phaeacians of what happened when lightning struck his ship with his men. Huh? It is line for line, word for word that. So even when he's telling this story, this tall tale, this plausible beggar's tale to Eumaeus, there's moments where his real story slips out. Huh? He, st- he starts telling the truth. I, I was. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to say when we got to it that that was one of my not favorite parts of book 14, but one I noticed the most because it actually sounds it sounds really frightening. Um, I'm I'm scared of deep water, and you know normally I can <laughs> read something. Written, well, yeah, normally I can read something written down and it doesn't affect me the way that seeing a film would or something like that. But in this case, for whatever reason, reading the way that it's described here. It was really scary, <laughs> um, and it's one of those moments that uh, I don't know feels really, really real, even though it's just words on a page. But that also makes sense because this was a story being told out loud to people, so you would need 
in that case to try to evoke the feeling of being you know at sea in a, in a really really bad storm i didn't realize david that it was exactly the same wording and that is really interesting but that that fits with the whole kind of mm-hmm. if you've ever heard somebody say that the best way to tell a lie is to put an element of the truth in it um you know that yeah. makes sense to me that he would incorporate even though the facts he's every all the facts he's saying might be false the feelings are real some of the feelings are real and that that gives it the feeling of authenticity even though he's telling a, a falsehood mm-hmm. yeah he it's roundabout line 435 back in book 12 he he does about four lines from like 435 to like four, 438 and then he picks up again at uh, about line 447 and then runs to 452. It really is exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. The one, the two words that he adds, he says, the God cut short their journey home forever. And the second time he tells the story, he says, not mine. Not mine. Yeah. Yeah, like like that kind of lands on you. This liar telling another lie, and then somehow, I mean, if I was filming this, it would be a flashback. Like as he's telling the story, I would be kind of presenting, you know, kind of vision, you know, so, sort of scenes from the story that he's telling as he gets caught up, caught up in a storytelling, and then maybe even against his own will, his story starts to become more and more like his own experiences that haunt him. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I tell my students all the time and I'm, and mostly I do this because we have uh, a, a cinema arts major at HPU, <laughs> but uh, I very often will say of the Homeric epics uh, and the Odyssey in particular, that uh, it has very cinematic elements um, there, there are things that the poet does that are intensely visual, but also very much like techniques of storytelling that are that are shown in film. And this moment is one that that I think would would translate very well to film. Absolutely. I would. I often when I read Homer, and especially the Lombardo translations, which are written very much like films. I think, I, I think, how great would it be if they did a ten-part miniseries that really covered the Iliad or really covered the Odyssey, did it the way Homer does it, as opposed to you know they've they've made movies of the Iliad and the Odyssey and they always try to cram it into two hours, and there's just yeah. so much stuff you you can't do in that time. But we have the special effects now to do it, and and the, the kind of limited series is a is a popular genre now on prestige yeah. television. It, I I would I would love to see some A list director take this on. I don't know exactly who I would pick, but somebody good. Yep, and cast uh, and cast Greeks. Well, you know I don't. I don't. I don't care so much about that. Well, I, I would. For once, I'd like to see a film of ancient Greeks or ancient Romans, and all the people who are cast aren't British. 
Like that's never made sense to me. Why is it? Why is it that whenever you make a movie about Rome, they all sound like Brits? <laughs> Nowadays, when you make a movie about America, they're all Australians. So. <laughs> I think you're right, Michael. I think that would be. I'm kind of surprised somebody hasn't tried to do that, given the popularity of, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, the, the kind of prestige fantasy series. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it's kind of surprising. Um, when we were we were talking about this series, Corkulum series, weeks ago, I was joking with David that I said the last episode should we should talk about A Where There Were Art Thou, which is my favorite Odyssey version. Sure. I was thinking um, about that movie this morning. But uh but you're right. I mean that's you know, that's a kind of movie that has gestures and elements, uh-huh. right? Because it's it's two and a half hours long. Like you can't you can't do it justice. And well and they, play, I think, they play it all for comedy too. Yes. Um though yep. my one of my favorite parts of that movie is actually their version of the sirens. Because to me, that seems legitimately creepy. We thought uh, you was a toad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think might be the funniest movie ever made. <laughs> Every time I watch it, I love it more. Um, and I'm in a tight spot. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I frequently think of that scene where Papio Daniels' two henchmen are arguing over whether the competition is kicking their butts or spanking them. This very serious... <laughs> argument <laughs> I've been reading slowly uh, James Joyce's Ulysses which I somehow made it through graduate school in eight years of teaching without ever opening and I mean it's interesting to see how he plays with the um, with the events of the Odyssey I have never I have managed to make it about as far as you and still and have also not open James Joyce. <laughs> I was told when I my last year of undergraduate, I was told that that was a book you should read before you go to graduate school, and I've I have felt guilty about not reading it for the last what what is that sixteen years? So I finally bought a copy. Is there any uh, any other last moments uh, we want to linger over between Odysseus and his swineherd before we uh, say adieu and? Leave book 15 to the next group. Eumaeus says that he misses Odysseus more than he misses his own late parents, which is either really moving or like an aristocrat's fantasy of what the help think of him. (laughs) And I don't know if maybe it would be naive to think that servants could feel that way about their masters or whether it's just like modern cynicism that keeps us from believing that Gabriel Marcel has a passage in, um, man against mass society. I think where he, he talks about exactly that issue, the, the idea that we have eliminated service as a vocation. And so we can't imagine that a servant could be loyal um, to his employer. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know if, I don't, I don't know if I'm, a, I'm, I have fallen prey to that, or whether it is kind of silly to think that Eumaeus would actually miss Odysseus more than his family. Well, I mean, not to steal the thunder of the people talking about Book Sixteen, but when Telemachus comes back to Ithaca, the, he makes a beeline for, for Eumaeus because he knows he can trust him. And Emmaus's dog, dogs don't bark. Yeah. 
Which I think so, it's actually us talking yeah. about that, isn't it? Do we? Yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> I think we've already recorded that episode, because I remember you mentioning that. Maybe we did the, <laughs> the, the books after that, and you called back to it. Yeah, I think maybe I think maybe that's it. Of course, our listeners uh, won't have heard that yet, because that won't air for two more weeks, so... It's the weird kind of <laughs> scrambled time of uh, of the core curriculum. You're right that it, you could take those two ways. You could also, though, maybe that, that moment could also be interestingly illuminated by thinking about what relationships may have been between parents and children. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you know, we, we think of how can he love Odysseus more than his parents? Well, I mean, you know, we tend to think, th- think through things in our own way, through our own experiences, and, oh, that sounds terrible because, of course, he must have been really close with his parents. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Right. <laughs> like, that's one of those things, you know, um, we kind of tend to think of whatever, the, you know, our own version of marriage parenting, you know, and kind of put it on the past sometimes. Um, I th- the, the last thing that I – the only other thing I wanted to say about this – book is it's kind of funny there's at the very end it's a cold night and and odysseus wants to cover up and so he decides to see if eumaeus would give him his own cloak or make one of his other guys hand it instead of just asking he doesn't just ask he doesn't just say i'm cold hey could i also have a cloak you've given me all these other things instead he makes it a weird test and he tells a story to see if this it's all very roundabout and it feels kind of pointless why not just ask and I wonder what you guys thought about that. I mean, is it literally just to give him a chance to tell yet another story? What was that whole thing about? Yeah, that that's one of the that's one of the bits in this book that uh, I had in mind when I was talking about Odysseus, quite literally and and almost intentionally setting himself up as an under and, and undercover judging deity. I mean, mm. he 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 seems to be functioning in the sense of, in in that in that role of the one who appears unseen, who will test whether you will be um, whether you will be righteous um, in a moment when it might not be uh, convenient or uh, in your in your favor or to your advantage. Um, but. He de- he actually does that several times over over the course of uh, his his venture back to Ithaca. He's he's very unsettled. Of course, he saw murdered Agamemnon in the underworld. So <laughs> I think he's a bit leery about coming back home. Didn't work for the other guy. But he yeah, he, well, you know- he mentions that directly. He says, "If you hadn't told me the suitors were up to this, I would have been killed just like Agamemnon." Right. Agamemnon. He, he, Agamemnon is one of the threads that runs from the beginning to the end. When I can't, I couldn't. By the time I get to the end of that story, I couldn't really be mad at it because it's one of the funniest stories to me. And the whole, I mean, you know, it's like this short story about you know Odysseus or how Odysseus faked out a guy to give <laughs> to get somebody else a cloak. Um, you know, but it's okay because the guy he faked out was young and strong. He's fine. He didn't get frostbite or anything. But. <laughs> It was just it was just kind of funny that 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 was because I mean David you're right about the testing but he could have also tested him by simply asking him like he you know tested his hospitality I mean by asking him. yeah uh, unless you know it's only truly hospitality if it's offered without 
being asked. Maybe that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have to freely offer it before someone actually asks. And if someone has to ask, you failed. That's possible. Um, I could, yeah. I could, it kind of like, I don't know. It makes me think of how one of my grandmas, no matter what time we go to her house, no matter what time, no matter what day, she always offers us food. Like, I wonder what would happen if we were hungry and had to ask her for food. She might die of shame. I don't know. You know. <laughs> well, on that note. It's late. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, what was, that's what I was thinking of in that moment. Well, yes. On that note, I think. I think we'll wrap this up. This was a fun conversation. Thank you all for joining me for it. Yeah, it's been for fun. Sure. Well, dear listeners, we hope that you also enjoyed this episode of Core Curriculum. Uh, if you have any feedback that you'd like to send us, you can send it to thechristianhumanist@gmail.com. You can post it on our our Facebook wall. You can post it on the show notes uh, for this episode on our uh, on our blog, christianhumanist.org. Uh, we're also on Twitter. Uh, C, uh, CH Radio Network is our Twitter handle. In the meanwhile, Core Curriculum is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. And on behalf of Michael Farmer and Katie Grubbs, I'm David Grubbs, wishing you all grand weeks and beseeching you, requesting you, inviting you to listen to the next core curriculum.